Welcome to the Eater Upsell. My name is Daniel Janine. I'm an associate producer at Eater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amanda Clute, who is our editor-in-chief. Hi, Dan. Hey, uh, every Amanda. week on the Eater Upsell, we talk about what we're writing about on Eater. Uh, we talk to our own journalists. We talk to voices outside of Eater just to get a sense of what's going on in the restaurant and food world. What are we doing this week? This week, we're doing something very special. Mm-hmm. We are partnering with the Southern Foodways Alliance on a piece that we co-commissioned way back at the end of August about Hurricane Harvey, which hit Houston end of August, early September. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit with our journalists about how we cover disasters through the food lens. It's kind of hard to sustain coverage of events like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harvey happened in August and early September. And since then, it's, you know, mid-November now, so many things have happened. Uh, We've had two more giant hurricanes. We've had mass shootings, an earthquake in Mexico City, whatever Trump has been doing, Harvey Weinstein, John Besh. So it's hard to ask your audience to... The wildfires. Yeah, the wildfires in Sonoma. It's hard to ask the audience to care about something that um, seems so long ago. But the reality is we want to remember these stories, we want to hear about them, and we want to know like how are these communities affected now. Before we jump into it, if you like this show, it would be fantastic if you rated and subscribed, and if you sent us an email to upsell at eater.com. We read every single one of them. So we're going to bring on Erin Jesus. Yeah, Erin oversees all of our news and reports operations here at Eater. She's our deputy editor. So she has to think about how to cover the food angle of natural disasters and and tragedies all the time. But also be conscious of what people are clicking on. Yeah, yeah. So she knows if, if the audience is actually interested or if they don't care. Erin, how do you cover natural disasters through the lens of food, and how does your coverage change as we move farther away from the event? The timeline definitely depends. I think for that kind of disaster coverage, um, I think the most obvious and you know really important story at hand is really how damage and closure affects you know small business owners, um, the folks who now have to contend with like either a pricey cleanup or fewer customers or having to close down entirely, um, and the other half being um, restaurant employees. I mean, these are people who might be dealing with like a personal tragedy or damage stemming from a disaster, and then they also have to deal with the reality that like their livelihoods are dependent on people, you know, still going out to eat and still tipping well. And the fact that these events, you know, even if they only cause temporary closures for restaurants, like really affect their paychecks and, and their lives in that way. Um, I also feel like one thing that we have discovered in this ongoing coverage is in the days and weeks after the disasters to, you know, talk about one positive sort of thing. Um, is that restaurants have really emerged in each of these cities and places where these things have happened as like sort of like a site for community to develop. And we've done a lot of stories where um, restaurant owners and, you know, citizens of certain towns will say that, you know, the restaurant in their neighborhood has become almost like the hub that you go to for news or just to commiserate or just to feel like you're not alone as, you know, something crazy is happening around you. But then restaurants are also big fundraisers and community organizers and they they do a lot. I know this was true with, with Harvey, but also in Sonoma Wine Country, like they do a lot to mm-hmm. to help people. Yeah, absolutely. And restaurant kitchens have you know emerged as sites. Um, most obviously, you know, with Jose Andres in Puerto Rico, also in Mexico City, um, where you know chefs look at what they have and they realize we might not have paying customers for the next couple of weeks. Let's take what we have in our walk-ins and really turn this place again into a community center and, and that third place. So when 
there are so many things happening in this crazy news cycle. How do you d- decide how to sustain coverage for a certain story? And when do you just move on? <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough because, um, you know, every story is important, um, obviously. And I think uh, if if our immediate approach is to to look at this very humanitarian based story, um, you know, the idea of the people and, and those directly affected. I think one thing that we have looked at in the weeks that follow are like scoping out a little bit. So, you know, how an event affects things like the overall economy and what that might mean for businesses. Or like, in some cases, there are things that a disaster or an event makes obvious that maybe you didn't think of before. Um, like talking to um, Amy McCarthy, our Houston editor, right after Harvey, she was saying that like the city is so reliant on people being able to drive because there's not really a public transportation there that like someone's car getting flooded made them unable to work. Mm. So the car flooding would be, you know, the day after sort of story. But to scope out a couple of weeks later, maybe we could look at, you know, how the lack of public transportation and infrastructure affects restaurants or something like that. So I feel like as time passes, the the circle gets a little bit larger in terms of scope, if that makes any sense. Yep. Is it tough to look at these disasters through metrics? Is it annoying or difficult in terms of how much traffic they do? Like if the audience is interested. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. It is annoying. That's a great word to use. <laughs> um, yes, it is. Because, again, these stories are important and we want people to click on them. So I think we do them very well. Um, but, yeah, I think given the nature of the news cycle and that it, it is a lot of doom and gloom out there, um, we have discovered that people do seem to respond better to stories with an element of uplift. So, you know, Jose Andres or the um, we did a story about like street vendors in Mexico City who have returned to work or, you know, in in some cases were back on the street three hours after the event happened. I think people are very thirsty for those stories. Um, And it it, it can be a frustratingly hard sell to get them to I don't want to say care, but get them to want to invest the time to read, you know, 2000 words about something that's not so positive or something that, you know, reveals a, an issue in, you know, like infrastructure or government response or those types of things. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that we we consider, too. Are there occasions when you try to find a restaurant angle to a tragedy and decide, like, actually, no, that's that's not a good idea? Uh, yes, we have definitely talked about this. Um, we turned down, you know, a few, like, honestly, like, very good ideas um, based in Puerto Rico, for example, about things like restaurant operations and businesses and, you know, bottom line type of reporting. Um, Because the fact is that, you know, that Puerto Rico is still in a humanitarian crisis and it might feel odd to talk about why, you know, a restaurant can't get X ingredients when so much of the country still doesn't have access to water, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, That's just like a pure, I think, timing sort of decision. Um, We also were talking, you know, I mean, as you know, in the edit meeting about um, after the Las Vegas shooting happened. And should we be talking to people about like security measures for all of these open air cafes and restaurants? And um, again, operationally, what, if anything, are people doing about that? And that was an interesting conversation, I think, ultimately. And, you know, chime in if you disagree. It Mm -hmm. felt a little... Um, I don't want to say like fear mongery, but kind of fear mongery. Yeah. <laughs> it felt a little almost too macabre in, in a way that it just didn't. It felt like we were almost forcing, forcing that conversation. There's not a food angle to everything. I mean, or there could right. be, but maybe we're not going to go there. 
Before we get to the Southern Foodways Alliance piece, we wanted to quickly catch up with our eater, Houston editor, Amy McCarthy, to see what it is like there. Just so while listening to this SFA thing, you'll have a sense of... You have a little more context. A little more context. I think immediately after the storm hit, it was mostly a lot of confusion. Um, I think everybody felt like their futures were very up in the air. Um, a lot of people were stuck in their homes far away from their restaurants and couldn't survey the damage. And then immediately after, they really turned their attention to making sure that people who were victims of the storm got fed. So and in, in really, they were working in terms of cooking thousands and thousands and thousands of meals. The focus was there as opposed to how do we immediately get back to work in our restaurants. Okay. It was really this incredible effort. There are honestly so many people to name. I can't even begin to make a list of the people who just immediately sprung into action and were using their own kitchens to make sandwiches, to get rice for people to make breakfast tacos, you know, at just this incredible scale, tens of thousands of meals every day with just the kind of efficiency that only the restaurant industry can do. Was there a moment when it shifted between disaster relief and the focus turned to the future and rebuilding? I think immediately after the Houston scene kind of got settled, a lot of those people turned their attention to other places that were affected by the storms, uh, Florida, Puerto Rico. A lot of people drove supplies to regions outside of Houston. And then I think a couple of weeks later, it was more, okay, let's, let's really get back to work. Um, I would say for the most part that the industry bounced back pretty quickly. There were some restaurants who were damaged significantly. Um, for example, Brian and Jennifer Caswell operate a restaurant called Reef in Midtown Houston. And it's been closed since the storm because it was just com- the dining room was just completely destroyed. But I would say for the most part, there were a lot of restaurants uh, and a lot of restaurant owners that felt like they came out pretty lucky. Any other notable closure other than Reef? Are there places that just won't be reopening, you think? There have been some big closures. Um, I would say most of the places that have closed were kind of walking down that road anyway, and Hurricane Harvey was the final straw. Mm. Um, you know, And sort of on our side of the business, the Houston Press closed its entire operation almost, and their food editor was let go, which means that that's sort of a a component of the city that won't be covered anymore in that respect. Was that, did they blame Harvey at all for that? Yes. In their, in their post kind of announcing the changes, it said that Hurricane Harvey was kind of the final straw. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that alternative weeklies rely on revenue from businesses like restaurants and nightclubs who, you know, are trying to rebuild themselves right now. They don't have money to spend on advertising with newspapers. How has, uh, has patronage been since the hurricane? Are restaurants busy again? I think people were really ready to get out and eat after the storm. I think people, you know, in the days after the storm, there was a a curfew that was imposed. Kind of, I think it was a midnight curfew. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. There were restaurants that were lobbying for that storm, for that curfew to be lifted because they were literally having to kick people out of their dining rooms in order to comply. We'll be right back. So, Dan, 
Amanda. I learned something really interesting today. What'd you learn? About ZipRecruiter. Pedro got hired through ZipRecruiter. Our engineer, and he's the best engineer. Can you confirm? He says, I can, but I'm not recording. Damn it. So, but he did. And if not he didn't, then this is a ridiculous to... <laughs> lie. What Pedro must have heard while he was listening to his favorite podcast, it could have even been this podcast, is if you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate like Pedro <laughs> through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. And now the journalist Barry Yeoman is going to take us to Houston in a collaboration between Eater and the Southern Foodways Alliance. The Friday I met Brian and Jennifer Caswell, they were 12 days out from opening Oxbow 7, a hotel restaurant in downtown Houston with a menu inspired by the bayous of the Gulf Coast. But instead of tweaking ingredients, they and their employees were loading a convoy of trucks, preparing for a 450-mile overnight road trip. All right. We're going to stack all those uh, flatbeds of chicken so that it's as tight as it can be. We can put those eggs right beside them because those boxes will fit. Around the corner, Brian was attaching his Ford Ram to a small refrigerated trailer. He's six foot five, with a mop of dark hair and an unfussy beard. And being a chef, he was lubricating the hitch in a rather unconventional manner. No, no WD-40, I got use a little, little cooking oil. When Hurricane Harvey made landfall two weeks earlier, unleashing 30 trillion gallons of rain on the region, the Caswells turned their water-damaged flagship restaurant, Reef, into a relief operation. Some days it turned out thousands of meals for first responders and displaced Houstonians. Now, the couple was heading down to the Texas coast, which had been pummeled by Harvey and in some places destroyed. Joining them were a handful of employees and volunteers. Brian made it clear to me that the decision to take off time from the new restaurant was not his. But Rockport, the beach community that took the most direct hit, was special to them, and it was hurting. 80% of its buildings were damaged, and a third were destroyed completely. The town still didn't have electricity or safe drinking water. Jennifer came into the hotel on the first day of me getting back in there cooking, and she goes, uh, so we're leaving on Friday. And I said, what do you mean we're leaving on Friday? I go, she goes, we're leaving on Friday, we're going to Rockport. Have you heard? It, the place is devastated. You know, I was, I was like, I have to get back to this hotel thing. And then, you know, she reminded me about what's going on and, and, uh, and in Rockport. And, and basically, she beat me over the head a little bit. And I realized, you know, you're right. We have to go. There's no choice. And so they were stacking these trucks with food donated by vendors and by other chefs. Duckling meat, tomatoes, bell peppers, bananas, chickens, 
peaches, brisket, liquid eggs from a cruise ship, lots of water, foil pans, bleach for cleaning. We took off for Rockport, but first, a detour to Seadrift, Texas, population 1500, on a bay 80 miles north of Corpus Christi. stopped at a makeshift drop point for relief supplies. It was a metal barn, decorated on the inside with rifles, antlers, duck decoys, and military medals. Outside sat its owner, Butch Hodges, a 74-year-old Vietnam vet who helps run fishing trips for other wounded combat veterans. Well, we catch uh, the spotted sea trout, flounder, black drum, and red drum mainly. We have had boys with no legs and no eyes, fishing and, and just have a big time. He just set him on the boat seat and when he hand him a rod and reel with a fish on it, just turn him in the direction the fish is and he'd big smile that wide. Butch called the barn his man cave. He often hangs out there with his veteran buddies, cooking meals together on the commercial stove. Since Harvey, he had been sleeping there too. Well, we lost the three rooms on the south side of the house. That was the direction of the force of wind, and it come in around the windows and under the doors. We got water in our home, and it run the carpets in all three rooms and furniture, and I'm not even able to uh, stay at home. I'm staying here in the barn because I don't have a bed. Brian and Jennifer dropped off some provisions at the man cave. Their real reason for coming to Seadrift, though, was to check on Tay and Lisa Wen, the Vietnamese-American couple who supply the Caswell's restaurants with soft-shell crabs. We drove down to the wharf. A sign warned us to watch out for alligators. At the Wen's crab house, music poured from competing speakers, some in Spanish, some in Vietnamese. They said hi to Tay, who put them on speakerphone with his wife, Lisa. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to talk to you? Hi, Miss Lisa. You remember Jennifer? And Brian, the big guy who cooks with you. Cook, eat, soft shell, egg roll. The movie, okay, here. Hi. The crab house looked like an open covered porch with a commanding view of San Antonio Bay. That's not what it had looked like two weeks earlier. This used to all be enclosed. And over to our right is an area that is where the softies Soft-shell crabs, when they're in season, um, that's where they, they sit there and they watch them to release their shells. Um, when, they, when, they when they molt. And uh, a softie is a, it's a delicacy. It's one of our favorite things down here in South Texas. Last time we were here, we had uh, lunch with them right there on that little gravel piece. There was a table, it used to be a table right there. What was lunch? Their version of a gumbo, actually, but there's no roux, no filet in it. But it was uh, like a true fisherman stew, you know, like a, like a, like a, you know, what, what they caught that day. Now the building was missing entire walls. There were piles of drywall and exposed insulation. Workers were using chemicals and flames to pull up what remained of the flooring. Brian and Jennifer have offered to help pay for the rebuilding, but the winds have declined anything but a loan. What had happened was the water came in all the way to the ceiling, and when the water does that, it then just tosses everything around. You lose some stuff out the front, you lose some stuff out the windows, you lose some stuff just because it's been waterlogged, and they've lost everything, literally everything, which is why we wanted to stop in and see exactly what we needed to do to help, because like I said, they don't want a handout, they want to do this themselves. How are you feeling right now? 
I really want to cry. I've been crying a lot. <laughs> Not today, hopefully, but when I first started out, um, found out that they that this was happening because they told us that they were fine. And uh, we called a chef that's down the street, and he said, no, they're not fine. No, they lost everything. He just told me, he said, um, you use that money for somebody that really needs it. And I said, uh, I said, I said, look, man, if, if you're not going to let us help you, then you're going to have to tell Jennifer yourself, because I'm not going to tell her. I'm not going to tell her. And he, he looked at me, and he said, I'm not going to tell her. Texas Gulf Coast has a tidal pull on both Brian and Jennifer. It informs their vacation planning, their philanthropy, and definitely Brian's career as a chef. For both of them, their love of water can be traced back to childhood. I was, you know, like a bayou hook fin. You know, I was kicked out of the house and, and I never spent summers in my home. My folks always sent me to the bay or to a ranch or, or something where I was just always out. We had creeks behind our house, and so we'd go out with the Oscar Mayer sandwich meat and, you know, a twig and string, and we'd be fishing for crawfish, which is absolutely ridiculous. And on occasion, we'd find some. And it was cast nets, it was seining, it was fishing, it was wading, it was digging in the mud. My father gave me these books of fauna and flora of the Gulf Coast, of shorebirds, and it was about identifying birds. And for some reason, this is just all I cared about for, between eight and like 25. Jennifer, who is wiry and blue-eyed and something of a human pogo stick, imagined becoming a marine biologist. Instead, she became the chief operating officer for most of her husband's six restaurants. Brian's early restaurant career took him to coastlines around the world. New York, Barcelona, the Bahamas, Hong Kong, Bangkok. Being away from the water, he says, would have made him feel caged that would drive me crazy. I would fucking flip out. For me, uh, the ocean is this vast, in one way it's completely empty, and in the other way it's, it's, it's like the unknown, filled, teeming with life. Brian eventually moved home to Houston and opened Reef, a Gulf seafood restaurant. He became well known for his use of bycatch, species that come up accidentally in commercial nets, but taste really good. Eating them, he argues, is more sustainable than discarding them, which is generally what happens. Brian found a fishmonger who specialized in bycatch, including some exotic species. And there were a couple fish on that list that I didn't think existed in the Gulf. That's what I wanted. Like, I wanted to see a freaking red hake from the Gulf. I wanted to see a queen snapper from... Seven from 100 miles offshore of, of Freeport. I didn't think they existed, and they did. And then since then, we've served over 92 different species out of the out of reef that are out of the Gulf. 92, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career. Brian and Jennifer started dating in 2013. Their third date was on his boat. That actually... But it wasn't just on a boat. It was 60 miles offshore yeah. on a boat with nobody else. And I'm like, my mom goes, um... So let me know when you guys leave the dock and try not to let them throw you overboard. Like, I hope you guys are, you know, you all, you know them well enough. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> it may or may not have been a test. After they got married in 2014, 
the couple talked about starting an organization to support coastal conservation and coastal communities. Last year, they launched the Southern Salt Foundation, which raises money, in part, through celebrity chef dinners. Their long-term goal is to fund a research and education center on the Gulf Coast. But, in the aftermath of Harvey, there were more immediate needs. And so, leaving the shell of a crab house in Seadrift, the Caswells drove another hour south to devastated Rockport. It was dark when we pulled into Rockport, and by that I mean really dark. With the power out, there was just enough light to make out the fact that the town was in shambles. We drove past storefronts where their roofs sheared off, and apartment buildings reduced to wood piles. There was debris everywhere and a faint smell of rot. And this was two weeks after the storm blew through, wiping out entire neighborhoods and blowing houses into the Gulf of Mexico. There was obviously so much need, and yet, driving through town, Brian and Jennifer were having trouble figuring out where to drop off their food. Our caravan kept texting one another as we chased down false leads. I've been through a lot of hurricanes. I've never seen anything like this. It's like the fucking Wild West. I mean, it's bad. The camps set up in different places. There's d- different factions, and they're kind of, some of them are aggressive towards other ones, and some are aren't. There's just all this, all this just kind of bizarre. Finally, they found what they were looking for, a parking lot bathed in floodlights. This was the volunteer operation run by Mercy Chefs, a Virginia-based Christian ministry that sets up mobile kitchens at disaster sites. The Caswells introduced themselves to the chef in charge. Lisa Saylor had tattooed arms and a shock of pink hair and a brisk efficiency that gave no truck to the fact that she had been cooking for 11 days straight. She hadn't left the lot in all that time. In fact, she had been sleeping just a few yards away inside a bus. Talking over the sound of generators, Lisa told us that this was her 37th deployment. You know, the disasters bring out the very best in people and the very worst. Today I had two people who lost everything they owned come to volunteer because they said, we just can't sit around anymore. It's been amazing. I keep saying, okay, God, what are you doing? Am I like going to feed the state of Texas for the next 10 years? Because people just keep driving up with food. And and we literally have not had to purchase hardly any food since we've been here. Relying on donations can be tricky, she said. One donor might bring enough food for 300 plates and another for 200. But at any given time, there might be 1,600 mouths to feed, which means switching menus partway through a meal service. It doesn't make it very easy because you can't plan anything. We got a myriad of things in there, okay. a lot of each one. Okay. We give you an inventory list. Okay. We can unload it if you want. While most of the crew unloaded, Lisa gave Jennifer and me a tour of Mercy Chef's operation. She started with the water purification system. Remember, there was no safe drinking water except from bottles. And then we moved on to the kitchen. This is a 32-foot, fifth-wheel mobile kitchen. It's basically a commercial kitchen that's built on wheels. So we have a 30-gallon tilt skillet and a double-stack Baker's Pride oven and a six-burner range. We're doing about 2,800 to 3,000 covers a day, and so we're using this equipment over and over all day long. We never turn it off. What has been on the menu? Well, yesterday we fed pork tenderloin with a mango and roasted red pepper chutney, and we fed that with a blueberry maple sausage dressing and roasted squash and zucchini, which was given to us from a local farmer's market, and we served that with a blondie brownie. That's a really impressive menu. 
Yes, we're all about doing restaurant quality meals. Um, when they open up their box, we really want them to open that up and just be like, wow, a moment of what it might be like to be at home. How have people been reacting? People are so grateful. They um, are pretty in despair to see their town so destroyed, and this town is literally destroyed. And they still have no water, and they have no power, so they're unable to cook at home, and there are no businesses open in the entire town. So they cannot go to a restaurant and sit down and have any kind of normal life. So they're very grateful to have a home-cooked type meal, a restaurant-quality meal, something hot. Meanwhile, across the noisy lot, Brian and the crew are unloading. Some of the high-end product raise eyebrows, including the ranch-raised Wagyu beef that came from three different purveyors. When the guy picked up that box and he saw Wagyu beef, his eyes lit up like a Christmas tree, man. He was so excited. He's like, 250 pounds of Wagyu, holy shit. But that's that 20 seconds of normality that sometimes you can provide with food in a total disaster area. The guy bites into something that reminds him of home or his grandma or hell, it's just the first hot meal he's had in a week. And he's, it's transcending. It takes you back to a spot where everything was okay and it gives you comfort. Maybe just for a second, but it's still some comfort. I don't know if Houston, the largest city in the South, is exceptional in this regard. Houstonians make a strong case that it is. The scholar Brene Brown has said that Houston operates by four rules. Love big, work hard, do right by your neighbors in the city, and don't drive slow in the passing lane. I won't touch that last rule, but the first three were evident during and after Harvey. Here's Jennifer Caswell. To see Houstonians the way that they have banded together we're like that a lot. If there's something bad, we band together. And things like political opinions oftentimes go right out the window because we know when it comes down to it, we're Houstonians and this is what we do. The last time I saw the Caswells, it was three days after we came back from Rockport and eight days before the opening of Oxbow 7. They were back inside the new restaurant, ironing out all the inevitable details. Among them, the drink menu as bar manager Judith Petrosky explained to me. So we're planning on doing a seasonal tonic. This season will be a watermelon tonic with a little bit of kefir lime leaf and orange peels and deliciousness with soda and gin. On the eve of their launch, the Caswell still weren't done with hurricane relief. Three days before opening Oxbow 7, Jennifer sent me an email at 4 a.m. She mentioned that they were about to send 800 lunches to a neighborhood that had lost everything braised beef shoulder, summer squash, lentils, and black beans. We all know how a hot meal can help bring comfort, she wrote. I wasn't terribly surprised by the message. Recovering from Harvey is going to be a long, expensive process. Mitigating the next calamity will mean tackling issues like growth, infrastructure, and climate change. In the short term, though, there have been a lot of Houstonians making sure their neighbors' bellies remain full. That is, after all, what the city does. Thanks so much for listening to the Eater Upsell and today's collaboration with the SFA. If you liked what you heard, go back, check out some other episodes. I particularly liked last week's where we looked at whether or not the Michelin Guide was BS or bull 
at ampersand dollar sign as the iTunes store changed it to. Mm. Uh, rude. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't chirp the uh, iTunes store, though, because they are the... Love them. Just yeah, kidding. they're the best. <laughs> they're the best. We love you guys. The Eater Upsell is hosted by us, Amanda Clute, Daniel Janine. Our engineer is Pedro Alvira. Our studio team is Miles Yule, Carrie Clements, Alex Allreich, and Paige Bethman. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. And that is all we've got. See you next week.